This podcast is sponsored by FortuneFavors.ie. FortuneFavors.ie is a home workout equipment store and your one-stop shop for all home gym equipment. They are well known for their adjustable dumbbells, which combine 15 different weights in one dumbbell. They have both 24kg and 40kg adjustable dumbbells. Check the link in the bio of this episode for more information. Hello and you're all very welcome along to today's edition of the GA Statsman podcast and I hope you're all keeping wonderfully well. My name is Matt Hurley and in today's show I welcome on Gorta47 founder and Mayo GA banter co-founder Paul Shoiga. Now Paul has been all over the world really doing his bit in promoting GA in Toronto, Moscow and New York to name a few places. In this interview I'll chat to him about his global journey about his beloved Mayo's chances in 2021, and about the current state of Gaelic Games today. Don't forget to give this a rating on Apple Podcasts, and let's get into it. So I'm here with Paul Scheuge, just uh, the founder of Garta 47 and the co-founder of Mayo GA Banter, just to talk about how he supported Mayo, about Mayo fans in general, how he's travelled all over the world, and how he founded Garta 47 in general. I suppose, first of all, Paul, look, you're in Toronto at the moment. I suppose it's nice weather over there, but lockdown's been terrible, I suppose, for you or any person over in America as well, just like over here. It's been, you know, challenging for people. How's it been over the last year or so for yourself, in a way? Yeah, thanks very much, Matt, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you're doing fantastic work. You know, you've you've all sorts of people interested in in what you do. You know, the the generic GA people, GA players, and of course the uh, hardcore fans as well. So you really managed to hit uh, kind of all all of the people with with uh, your fantastic stats and your contributions to GA. So it's it's an honor to be on the podcast, and thanks very very much for that. Firstly. Um, yeah, there's not one person on planet Earth that has to be affected with COVID. It's it's not easy at all. The biggest fear I have with COVID is is with people's mental health and um, not being allowed to gather in groups, not being allowed to play a sport. You know, it's it's really a, a dour time for a lot of people. And at this stage, with this far in, I, I really feel that um, it's up to people now to kind of say enough is enough and um, let's just get back to normal because there's many, many illnesses that we can, we can all get and we don't go around you know, thinking that's going to happen. We don't cross a road thinking we might be hit by a bus or have an accident you know, at work, on the farm, in college, wherever it might be, because if that was the case, we might never, ever leave our bedroom uh, in the morning. So I'm really hoping that enough people are kind of waking up to be, we have to just get on with our life. The fact that sport is still going ahead especially an amateur sport like Gaelic games without its fans, we're kind of half doing it. You know, we're half in playing the COVID game and we're half out. So all that matters to me is keeping as many healthy people healthy as possible. And, and a lot of that comes down to mental health too. And the last year, it doesn't matter where you are on planet earth. It's not easy. Uh, right now where I am, there's some very, very good weather, but there's some very dark and very cold winters here too. And, we all get through many, many 
parts of our life with friends around us and with communities around us and with social clubs and sports clubs around us. And without that over the year, over the last year and a half, it's been very, very tough. So it doesn't matter where you're based in the world. It's not been easy and you haven't had a crutch of your local team or your county team to rely on or your friends and many, many lads and ladies around Ireland, especially that's who their closest circle of friends are and that's who their family are. And um, that's a crying shame. And watching the All-Ireland final last year, I mean, when I say this, it was very, very weird for me to watch an All-Ireland final with Mayo in it and not be there in, in the crowd. And you're watching it and it's, it's just missing something. It's missing that bit of life. It's almost, you know, you have a record player playing music and then you have, you know, something been playing off Spotify. The difference is night and day. You know, you, you can't hear the instruments and, and the major instruments in Gaelic games is, is people's voices, people's passion. You know, there's been people that have had heart attacks and strokes watching games. Many of them wearing a green and red supporters jersey over the years. But when you're watching this game in Crow Park International Stadium and uh, there's nobody at it, I'll be honest, a lot of people weren't bothered who won. And I know Mayo were once again the underdogs, but even when Dublin won, it just wasn't the same. The same passion and energy wasn't in the game because we've been at some massive games over the years and um, the, the crowd has often turned the tide in games and because there's that much energy swooshing around the stadium like that. You've got, you know, 80-something thousand people. And when you take that away, you know, it's like watching those comedy shows where they fill in the laughter. It's just not the same. So... I understand that you're calling me from, from Cork right now and I'm over in uh, Toronto, Ontario, but this lockdown does not help any man or woman or child. And um, the, they're the people I care about. And, and I, I feel people, especially in leadership roles of organizations and politicians really have to step up to the plate and kind of call enough is enough. And, uh, you know, take strength from certain places. I was lucky to um, have traveled a lot of the world and, Right now, places I visited, such as Florida or Moscow, as two places to, to talk about that I visited myself, they're both back to normal right now. And in Ireland, we've kind of one foot in, one foot out. So I find that tough, Matt. I know we've had a chat about this before, but um, I'm really hoping things change up. Absolutely well said there. And I hope it, uh, I say every person in Ireland will feel the same. We just want things to go back to normal as soon as possible, as safe as it can be, I suppose. And I suppose you there was a program actually over here in Ireland, uh, Prime Time, they were actually comparing like the Euros is going ahead right now. Denmark were playing Russia in the park of the stadium. It was 25,000 or something like that. And then there was 500 at a GA game and they were just looking at the difference and they were, we were thinking, what are Denmark doing so well and we're not, we're kind of taking the safe approach. Looking at the Euros as well, I suppose, you see some of us, some bits of us, the group stages are over and that now. Do look at crowds in games, there's so much fans, there's so much noise, so much colour in stadiums and then in GA stadiums, there's only like family members supporting the players or whatnot. Does that kind of infuriate you in a way that, you know, the yours is all that fan, them fans and the G is non-existent really? Infuriation would be definitely a word because if you take a step back and try and have a very sober viewpoint on the whole thing, a lot of it doesn't make sense. If one game has a full crowd and the other game doesn't have a full crowd and even when these statistics that 
may or may not have been proven over time because a lot of measurements of, for example, testing positive, what's very weird about that is that you have no reference point to reference that testing of positive to. So there's some very uh, strange uh, protocols at bay where if you dig deeper, they don't make a lot of sense. And if you are playing something like the European Championships in one country and then in, in the same European Union, you can't have a crowd at another game, an amateur game. Well, then why are we in the why are we in the one European Union? Because it doesn't make much sense to me. We're either all united or, or we're not all united. I was lucky enough to support Ireland back in 2016. We did a great run at the Euros, and I was there when we lost 2-1 to France. And it was the best four weeks of my life. I met some great friends and we just had a great time. And it was one time the whole of Europe were actually united in um supporting one team and that was Iceland against uh, some team called England and uh, it was a great victory and one of the best victories I remember that along with beating the Italians too with, uh, was was massive as well but the fact that that's going ahead for professional players and amateur players can't have their family friends and hardcore supporters support them over the road it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because at the end of the day as an amateur player your net worth is playing in front of a crowd because you only reach a certain level where if you're lucky enough and you're in the top 5% of uh, GA players, you might be looked after with, you know, sponsorship and, and different bonuses that are available. Um, maybe some officially, some not, not officially, but um, if you don't have the loved ones around you to support you through the game and drive you on and, and, and give you that buzz and that energy that you need to help you get through the dark winters of, of hard training, well, then what are you playing for? It's very hard to watch. I'm sure even as a neutral, for example, you're watching either of the finals last year in hurling and football, and there's no crowd at it. It's very hard to get into it, you know? And again, I'm just saying that because Dublin won yet another All-Ireland, but it's just, it just didn't mean the same. You know, the, the, the passion of, 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 of roaring out the, the national anthem, the passion of roaring out the captain's speech at the end, it's, it's just not there. You know, it's just not there. And I, I've been, I've been at so many finals and I've seen the crowd, you know, sway a game, especially the Mayo crowd. They're unbelievable at that. And um, they're definitely the, the 16th man or, or 16th woman in a game, but um, that certainly wasn't there last year. And I think it'll be sad again this year, if that's the case going forward into the final, because again, if we're in the European union, why is there different rules between the countries as well? Because, a lot of, for example, the news headlines are the same spiels been used across the world when it comes to uh, promoting um, the steps we're supposed to take as a human race to protect ourselves against COVID. But yet, um, when you break down the rules within countries, they're different. And uh, a lot of it don't make a lot of sense to me because um, even within Gaelic games, you're still dealing with much smaller crowds than you would be dealing with at the European Championships as well. And remember, the people are from those localities uh, or granted, they might be from even further away, for example, the upcoming uh, provincial championships, but nothing like in the Euros where you have people from all corners of Europe, you stick in Russia as well, you stick in Turkey, like you've, you've got a, a wide selection of peoples there all gathered in stadiums anyways. So it'll be interesting to see if they have uh, some honest statistics from the Euros that, uh, that reflect what's going on, because honestly, I'm losing a bit of faith in uh, the people that are supposed to be running the show. Yeah, absolutely. There's supposed to be more GA fans coming to stadiums, but even then it's capped at 500 with a few test events like league finals, Cork, Limerick and Hurling's another one. Like, 
And even the hurling game, the other semi-final between, I think it's Clare Watford against Tipperary. That is Nets fans, and that probably just doesn't make sense to me. I know I'm a Cork fan and all that, but you surely you'd have equal fans at those stadiums. They should be all equal counties, etc. And Munster Championships being the most competitive in probably out of the six provincial competitions across hurling and football. And one game is taken precedence over another, I think. You know, it's not really right in many ways, but hopefully we will get out of this rut and get more fans back into the stadium, especially for all our finals, because as you said, it, it was more, mostly like a sold stadium in many ways. The hurling and the football might have been entertaining at some points in the game, but you just need the fans there to add a bit of colour, add a bit of life to the game, and hopefully the fans will be fully back in their stadiums soon as soon as possible. And I suppose moving on to a few positives, which yourself, obviously, you've been all over the world, really. Toronto, New York, Moscow, to name a few cities. Absolutely outstanding, really, just traveling around the world, promoting G everywhere you go, really. How's that been for yourself and have you enjoyed it in many ways? Well, yeah, I suppose the most uh, far-flung place I went with, um, with the GA was definitely Moscow or Moscow, as they call it. And um, the club I trained over there was called the Moscow Shamrocks. And I trained them for about two weeks. And I worked with a couple of the guys in the club, Alan and Kieran, especially where we kind of made plans of how you would develop the club going forward and how you would link it up with uh, various Irish organizations within the city of Moscow and how you would link up better with uh, other European leagues because for example, the Moscow team is lumped in with some, some teams from Sweden and Germany and even France and Belgium. So there's a lot of traveling involved there. It's not just, uh, you know, getting the train down from Houston. So um, it was a very interesting um, experience because obviously we trained in a private college and it was a soccer field we trained out of, but it was just great to um, have players, you know, from all over like there was there was one or two from Minsk and actually Belarusia there's one or two from St. Petersburg and other people from as far as RD and County Loud so uh, it was um, it was a great experience because you know Russian people were learning about this game and and the Irish are well liked over in Russia because uh, they're telling us all about you know St. Patrick's Day celebrations for example and everything else and it was just fantastic to see it that you, you know you in this part of the world, you have a bit of uh, Ireland, you know, going ahead in, in competitive games and, and they've gone to many European tournaments as well. And and that's where, you know, a lot of people in the GA have to take credit where there's still volunteers out there that are doing stuff like that, that are linking up, uh, you know, the length and breadth of Europe to bring bring together, you know, GA clubs. I know that um, I, for example, I have one cousin over in Austria um, involved in a GA club and I have one cousin in uh, Valencia and for example she left Dublin a few years ago where you know she hadn't been in touch in the GA in a, in a while and now she's involved heavily with uh, with clubs over in Valencia so there is a nice um, depth with the GA when it comes to outside of Ireland too but a lot of time they lack the support of actually GA headquarters based out of Dublin and that's one thing that's kind of disappointing because sometimes I feel that in GA headquarters you know, if you rock in with the uh, with the AIB badge stuck to your to, stuck to your shirt, like you get looked after, or maybe your Sky Sports, but it's not always appreciated with the hard work that goes ahead across Europe. You know, across uh, South America, I once interviewed a team from uh, um, from Argentina. Um, 
obviously I've lucky enough to play. I played GA in San Francisco. I played GA in New York and Toronto as well. And obviously New York was the most competitive. I played with the Mayo Club over there in New York. And obviously it's, it's a part of the county setup with, uh, with Connacht as well. And the likes of New York and London, I feel sorry for because I was in London when I was working for Irish TD uh, for one of their um, uh, championship games with Mayo. And, you know, Mayo won comfortably on the day. And then that ended London season. But with the last two years now, the likes of London, New York will kind of recede a lot because they will not have had the same competitive games. And if you go back a few years, the likes of London were doing well and New York were doing well because they were getting good challenge games from club teams over in Ireland. And that has kind of died in the last few years too. And I understand we're still playing the COVID games and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, if you're to run a championship, it's very hard where they just literally cold shoulder two counties just because they're out of um, the actual physical locality. Because if you really wanted to go for it and do it correctly, you could, you could have a way where you actually bring those two counties to New York and London over, have them in a hub, have them in a bubble, whichever way you want to do it and, and play the games off and give them the, the fair chance they deserve. Because these guys, they go through a lot of pain and torture by themselves. Um, to give an example of New York, some of the players on that panel are coming as far as Connecticut uh, to play for the county there. And you're talking, you know, three hour journeys, three and a half hour journeys where you're leaving Gaelic Park maybe at 11 o'clock at night. You know, people don't see that when they might see five minutes of the game on the Sunday game if they play a Mayo Galway or a Scammon in, 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 a, in a preliminary round championship where usually they usually get bet. There was a few years they were close, obviously, and a few years they were unlucky, but you know, the last game I was at in New York was 2018. It was the Mayo game. And of course, it was a very, very convincing win for Mayo. But they're after coming off winning, you know, the league as well. And New York hadn't had the opportunity to play any teams that were anywhere near the, the caliber of Mayo. So even when Mayo didn't put out their strongest uh, squad, you know, it was it was still never a game that would ever be in doubt. And, and one of the biggest fears I have with COVID is that the hard work that people have put in as immigrants in places like London and New York over the last couple of, well, I say a couple of years, I mean, you, New York it could, go back, could go back nearly the century. Um, it, it, it recedes a lot. And that worries me because, again, I feel the GA should have taken 2020 off as a year and just regrouped and strengthened up a lot of weaknesses they had in the association, but they refused to and rushed through, you know, a league and rushed through a championship and they'll do the same this year as well, just to tick a box, which is, which is disappointing because it's um, you're seeing injuries happen now as well. And fellas are being rushed in and I don't feel the players are being taken care of, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. But if you're to go ahead with a championship, like you did try and do this close to normal and, and try not just to be cold shouldering out two counties in New York and London are two counties that I feel for in that, because there's been a lot of hard work done over the years in both those places to get them to a standard. And now, they're going to recede a lot because two seasons in a row now they're not involved, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so I've interviewed a London fan, funnily enough, he only followed GA since 2019. He's actually a Londoner, Londoner himself. He's on TikTok, Harvey Allen, and he's passionate about the GA and he just love would love London to get back into that kind of championship, have a go off Mayo, have a go off Sligo, and even... The year they beat Sligo in 2013, yeah. got to Crow Park. I was at that game, luckily enough, when they played Cavan. I know they got a bit of a hiding that day, but 
it was absolutely brilliant for those players to get that experience and just to play their hearts out in Pro Park. And even I remember New York, um, correct me if I'm wrong, no, they came close to Ross Common. I think it was a point in it. Yeah, one point. Again. Yeah, and they were so unlucky to lose that game. And you feel with COVID now, with tw- they're out of the 2020 and 21 championships. They, they're going to regress, unfortunately. And it's, it's a very sad sight to see, like, you have mentioned it already, but do you think the developments of these two sides in London and New York is is going to be really affected by COVID when they eventually come back into the championship in 2022? Yeah, a lot, Matt. And it's it's tough to see. I, um, I've been involved in GA my whole life. I you know went up through the ranks in terms of all the coaching badges and the refereeing badges. And um, when I went back to college a few years ago, I went to... Um, University College Dublin, where I studied a master's in sports management to focus on GA. And that's where I, that's where I focus my thesis on. My, my thesis is actually based on um, the correlation between where clubs were kind of shrinking a bit in Ireland, but they were expanding abroad. Like, so places like, for example, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and these places you might have never heard of before. So the, the go-to places were always Australia, England, and um and the US, but these newer countries that had GA clubs, which was a which was a great exploration for myself um, as both kind of a, a, a bit of a history buff and someone who's doing it in a, in a kind of a planning sense. And I suppose I, I went through various rounds of interviews. Uh, was it was a year and a half ago now or so for uh, a development role officer in uh, GA in New York. And uh, obviously it took some research and I was down, I think, to the last uh, three or four of, of the um, of the interviews uh, process. I remember I was working actually over in uh, in Las Vegas for Mr. Olympia. So I was working with a, with a Dutch TV channel. And before I had to go to work that morning, I was on the phone to Crow Park uh, at about half four or five o'clock for a, for a, for a Skype call for my, my last interview with the GA. So before I'd done that um, interview, I'd obviously done a lot of research on uh, New York. I'd worked in New York as a um, GA coach as well and up around Connecticut, Yale University. Um, and there was a lot of work to do. There was a lot of work to do to get um, New York to a standard of uh, organization that uh, would rival the other, for example, counties in Connacht, but not impossible. Uh, what people forget is there's a huge uh, geographical area to cover, but it can be done. And where I feel sorry for, let's just say New York and London again, where I feel sorry for them is that, remember, younger players coming up as, as minor, especially the American lads that are, you know, many of them might only have Irish grandparents, for example. Their whole dream is to get onto the county team just like any other lad around Ireland and you've two full years of these lads not getting a chance it's an awful waste because then they have no purpose to to drive forward and what was great was that the um the homegrown New York team Barnabas actually won last year what was great about that was that they deserved that for years because sometimes I don't understand how they allow so many Irish players to go to places like New York Boston and further afield like San Francisco in these places without a drafting system because what happens is some of the bigger clubs get a pile of players a lot of them are paid well and you don't see what's actually happening all year long within the GA circles because clubs swell up they win and then those players leave and go home again but you don't actually know what's on the ground there 
And with the, those two counties, for example, not being involved in the Connacht Championship over two years, you might find some of these clubs really struggle to field teams. And that's what I worry about because for any, I mean, many watching this are, many people watching this have, you know, have probably trained for years if they've been involved in the GA and, and they know that for muscles to grow, things need to break down. And sometime in organizations too, need to break down to grow as well. And again, from looking at my um, preparation, for example, for that job interview, I noticed a lot of things had to be changed in the system of the county to, to make those big changes happen. And that's why New York were getting closer and closer, but they're just missing a few little bits. And some of those bits, a lot of it came down to the fact that, um, you know, Gaelic grounds over there. Yes. It's a, it's a fantastic historic grounds to have, but remember they don't own the grounds there. So they were hoping to spend up to like $3 million to revamp those grounds, but they're subletted tenants. They don't actually own the grounds. So it's actually the train network. They own the grounds. So sometimes the forward planning wasn't the best and things really need to be stripped down and talked about rather than just throwing money at an issue. Um, and the reason I, I, I really saw the Gaelic grounds as an issue there was that there was only one football field. So there's no place for the next team to warm up. And what happened when I was over there refereeing, especially is that we'd have games delayed the whole way. And you might have a team leave at 12 midnight, 1230 midnight and have to travel into Connecticut, which is two hours away, three hours away. So they arrive at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning after playing a game in uh, Gaelic grounds. So there was a lot of changes to, to, to make. And I know the people that are there are working hard, but sometimes it's not as streamlined as it, as it could be. And again, I feel with the coronavirus, I feel for anyone involved in working at this over there because it's not easy, but the fact that their county team is not going to be involved now in, in any big games, it re will really set them back. And the biggest thing I noticed about the Mayo team is I'm not saying that all the Mayo fans brought all the money, but there's such an amount of Mayo fans that it really helped raise money and raise funds for teams over in New York at that time to use that as an example, because I was there myself. I was, uh, hosting two events. Um, I saw David Brady on off the ball there today and myself and David Brady were, um, hosting one event in Rosie O'Grady's in Times Square. And there's another event where I hosted in Cipriani's as well for the Mayo, Mayo Association. And these are all great events that help both the Mayo team back in Ireland and would help the uh, county teams that are uh, in New York too. And that money is made available then for younger players coming through that helps with the development. Uh, because the other sources of funding would be, say, summer camps, which, uh, which I oversaw as well. But the thing is that... Um, the, the interest gets kind of lost when, when the big county team is not involved. Because remember, it's just like back home at any of the counties, all the kids, the American kids, American Irish kids, Irish American kids, they all look up to the county players. And uh, the county players haven't been able to display their talents over the last two years. And that was very, very tough in New York and in London. And again, if we didn't have had this uh, virus at all, I know that we knew we chatted before. And, you know, there's many other cities that have had such a GA presence over 50 to 100 years, I would be hoping at this stage they'd be coming forward into having a, a kind of a county team or at least a preliminary county team, you know, cities like San Francisco, for example, Boston. And even in the last few years, Texas have actually had a more growing GA scene. Granted that it might be at a junior level or whatever else, but there, there is there is scope to have some sort of other, you know, uh, county teams available that, that would at least help bolster and give challenges to county teams that have to go to Ireland and play bigger games. Because 
the 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 gap that London and New York, just to use them as examples, because they're they're being excluded again this year, have to reach is is widening all the time, and that's was very very tough. Yeah, absolutely. We'd hope that uh, London and New York come back stronger than ever in twenty twenty two because we definitely need as much people as possible getting interested in G around the globe. And you were mentioning other cities like San Francisco and Texas, etc. That they could come into the other championship. It's not a possibility in the near future, but maybe in the for in the forty years to come, it could be a possibility. Another few that I could see as well. There's GA communities in Europe, like in Barcelona or Paris or in the, in the Czech Republic, where I have a friend from there, funnily enough, that loves his game of hurling. And mm. do, you, do you actually see, you know, teams other than London and New York, like worldwide teams such as Barcelona or San Francisco competing in the other championship in, you know, future years, like the 2030s, for example, maybe? You know, it's a great question, Matt. How do I put this? Sometimes I feel that um, people need to go to these places to really see if that opportunity could happen. And sometimes I feel that it might never happen because there's almost this autocratic rule uh, within the GA that it will get so far, but then it'll get shut down, Uh, which is kind of tough because a lot of the time, these volunteers that either set up these clubs or support these clubs, most of the time it's, it's their own funding. And therefore they're kind of gets stifled a bit for kind of silly reasons that I don't really understand a lot of the time because they're genuinely just trying their best. The standards obviously is not the same, especially throughout Europe. But I remember working at the GA games a couple of years ago that were held in uh, University College Dublin and I got to meet Spanish teams from Galicia. There was uh, teams from Germany, Norway, um, France as well. And these are countries, again, that wouldn't be more commonly known for, for having GA clubs. And they had a lot, a lot of passion, but they got very, very little support. Uh, like even the fact that they had GA written on their jersey, that was about as far as the kind of support God and you know maybe you might be able to get someone on from from that's actually a, a paid employee of the GA to, to talk more on this but um, that's kind of more of the the facts from someone that was on the ground and that was kind of disappointing because sometimes I was almost feeling if you're going to the effort of setting up all these clubs and you're not getting any help well why not run them the way you want to run them which might mean be more streamlined because there's no point having all of these levels in a club if it's a small club and you just want to get from a to b and there's no need to have all these levels upwards when you can just have the levels you know outwards you don't you can have it more linear than just we have to climb up the ladder to you know someday i'll be treasurer and someday i'll be co-chairman someday i'll be chairman or whatever where a lot of the younger clubs just get to it very very fast and they get moving what i noticed over in toronto um some clubs were running it like one of those you know almost like a like it like a tech firm in a way that was very uh you know linear organization rather than this whole hierarchy but the some clubs ran it like they almost took the worst ideas out of ireland and they combined it with the uh, you know the, they call it a, a street league over here uh in in canada and then combined and made a team that just didn't really work or a club that didn't work and then they ultimately fold so in toronto there was nine teams at one stage now they're down to about five 
Um, the, the pandemic will get rid of a lot of players because so they've no reason to kind of be around. And some of the some of the management wasn't the best. Um, Canada GA again could do with some restructuring. I'd love to even debate that with someone if they would debate it with me, but uh, the Vikings, um, they like to do things behind closed doors. Um, but I, I think the pinch will be felt outside of Ireland even more, like when it comes to GA. So wherever we talk about, at the end of the day, there's less support outside of Ireland. So if you've, if you've got a club outside of going through this pandemic, you're in, you're kind of, more of a dark hole like so for example in this city there's no games going ahead um so therefore you lose the momentum within the within the clubs which is sad to see because you know we, we had a few uh, you know good seasons here and stuff and there's decent crowds coming to bigger games and 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 that will all die off too um again i don't know the the, the quick solution apart from just basically if if every club took their own ownership and just dealt with their own players themselves and, and, and try to get the engine going again and, and have, have sessions and have games and organize them like the way they used to be organized before we had these, this structured organization. Cause remember when, before the GA became formed in 1884, there was basically parishes just meeting up just to play games. And that's how it was done. And in the, 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 the more naturally, flatter parts of Ireland hurling blossomed and then in the rougher parts of Ireland like where I'm from uh, especially in the west you had uh, you know had more football because the land wasn't as good you know so you you might have something some new sparks come out of it you might genuinely have some new sparks come out of it but but there's a lot of changes that need to happen because sometimes club politics go all the way up to the county and and they kind of they, they kill the mojo you know and and I've seen some fantastic players just walk away over the years and it's 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 sad to see because the organization is is much weaker without it yeah i suppose it's absolutely brilliant that g is developing all over the world and hopefully a team like san francisco or barcelona or czech republic or p paris saint germain type of team get into the ga championship as soon as possible it'd be absolutely brilliant to have them in there and it'd be brilliant just to promote the game in general and i hear as well you're a qualified referee is that correct it is, yeah. The the, uh, the joys, some serious, um, some serious refereeing stories that I could tell and I, and I shouldn't tell too. <laughs> you learn a lot about foul language. Oh. <laughs> the first game I ever refed in New York was actually a hurling game, and uh, there was very little hurling. And there's a lot of language and there's a lot of belting and skirmishing and um, there's a lot of freeze we called and you were called a lot of names. So I uh, wouldn't wish to any man or woman. <laughs> yeah, it's, it must be, you know, do you ever get, um, you know, criticized for making the wrong decision or anything? What kind of abuse goes your way? You know, the, one, one of the greatest things I learned about... Um, you know, when I first joined the refereeing courses, I'll be honest, I joined with a friend of mine. Me and him played uh, senior football together in Dublin. Uh, Sean is the same. And the, I would really advise it to any young players out there because you'll get to know the game so much better and you get to know how the referees operate and how maybe you can make your game work within the rules. Um, it's not easy with the GA when they change the organizational rules every single year. But 
that's the way it is. For some reason, they like changing the rules every year and making our game, I don't know, is it to suit the Australian football more to become some sort of breeding ground for Australia or something? But um, at least if you're involved in refereeing courses and, and you become a referee, and this is for anyone out there, you will be kept of better abreast of what's going on. Because, because I mean, many, many of us watching the game, when something, something happens, happens, we don't know what card would be thrown out if we're watching from, from, from the audience, or in this case, from, from the TV. It could be black, yellow, or red. And um, between Sinmans and everything else, they keep changing it up. So it really helps young players to improve their own game if they know what the referees are looking out for or what the referees will let go with, with the flow of the game. The re- best referees for me are the ones that like let the game go. If you have to deal with a player, let, let that play stop and then come back and maybe deal with that player. You don't want to be one of those, those referees, referees that's blowing the whistles, whistles all the time. But again, it depends on the standard of level that you're refereeing. Hurling wouldn't be my forte. So if I was refereeing a hurling game, it's usually of the lower leagues, for example, where I was luckier in football where I got to referee games of higher leagues. And that's not to disregard anyone playing of any leagues, but when you're um, refereeing a game, when it's played at a higher level, because the pace and, and the um, general weight of the game is moving so fast, there's less things to be pulling on. And again, uh, one of the things I found out um, about when I first started refing was that you have to have a lot of respect for the, the man or woman in black in the middle of the field because it's not easy to make every call and it's not easy to get it right all the time. One thing I always made sure was that, you know, I had a, I had a watch on me that was covering the distance I was doing. And, you know, some games I was covering between nine to 12 kilometers myself. And I felt that at least if I was by the player where the ball was happening or where the pass was being made or where they were kicking the ball in, might be made with a late tackle or whatever, that at least you were there and you could make a judgment call because you were there. There's nothing worse. And we've all had referees actually growing up and they'll, they'll stay around the middle of the park and they'll waddle up and waddle down and, uh, whatever else, but uh, I think the game has changed a lot since, since those days. But what hasn't changed is uh, we're still fond of giving a bit of abuse to the ref as well, you know. So uh, especially especially away from Ireland, I think it's I think it's a lot worse. I think a lot of uh, players' life frustrations are coming out in the referee. Something some some issue they had at work, or you know the uh, the relationship that day has come out now in a football field or something like that. But no, it's something that someone someone should definitely um, look into, especially if they want to improve their own game. And when you're younger, um, you're fitter too, so you can keep up with the play. Because what usually happens is the average age of left referees is is kind of on, on, on the older end. And younger players don't realize the value of actually being a referee to, to how to help you be a better player and a better coach or manager in the future too, because you know the rules. I would like if the GA stuck to the same rules and kept our game the great game that it is because I have explained the game of Gaelic football in particular to people from all over the world and it is a super exciting game. And yes, I'm being a bit biased here, but you know, you you sit down and try and watch a baseball game even if you're given the best tickets on the ground or, or try and watch an American football game where you have to wait for the advertisements to go through onto the TV and you sit there and wait for the next squad to walk on the field while the offense squad come off and they're all resting and sitting down, taking it easy. When you have amateur players giving their every last breath they have for, for, for 70 minutes, 75 minutes, whatever it may be. And they're doing it day in, day out with, with the passion that they do it in. And that's why our games is so, so good, but it's good because we have 
the amazing rules that we have. When you keep changing the rules all the time, you confuse a lot of people and you take a lot of the natural skills out of the game. And the natural skills are what the game is all about, you know, blocking, kitchen, sorry, blocking, kicking, passing. That's what it's all about. And and obviously the solo as well. But you can't be... The, the current game of, of this sort of Aussie rules hybrid, I don't like it. And it's not our game. Why are we bending to suit a game that's the other side of the world? Unless maybe we don't know something that maybe there is some sort of recruitment uh, process or farm system for younger players to go abroad. Like the most recent, obviously, is the cream of the crop of the ladies footballers and you know, maybe maybe there's similar plans for the men's. I don't know. Money talks. Yeah, it's absolutely a brilliant experience being a referee, I'd imagine. And about the rule change, I can see by, you know, the expression of your face and whatnot. You know, the rule changes are really messing with your head. It's messing with a load of people's heads. And especially this year, you know, the drag down for Pendy beyond the 20 meter line, like, at times, I actually feel sorry for the referees. For the first time in a long time, I feel kind of empathetic towards referees. I suppose you do as a qualified mm-hmm. referee yourself all yep. the time, really. But do you feel more empathetic towards referees more so this year with with even more rule changes than before? Yes. And, and, and maybe there's a time where the referees can stand up and go, we're GA members too. Why do we have to have these rule changes? Who's behind the rule changes and, and what's the purpose and how are they benefiting our games and our association? In my lifetime in soccer, which is one of the GA's biggest rivals, the back pass to the goalkeeper is about the biggest change that ever happened in soccer. And that goes all the way back to the times of Peter Schmeichel and co winning the European Cup with Denmark, where they basically took the biscuit in passing the ball back to the goalkeeper and slow the game down to a bore. They won. They won a uh, European Cup um, that they might never, ever win again. But that's what changed the rules. With the GA, why would you have so many rule changes in an amateur organization when half the time the referees can't keep up with all the rule changes and they're not being refreshed on these refresher courses all the time because at the end of the day, Everyone's a volunteer and the small bit of payment you get paid as a referee doesn't even cover the fuel. So, you know, when, when, when life gets in the way, you can't be, you know, uh, going to another course just to see what the latest rule changes. I just don't understand why they keep doing it. I don't get it. Why, why not scrap the games altogether? If you keep changing the rules, like what, what, what do they want and who's behind it? There never seems to be that one person behind it. You know, the president comes out to, I'm going to change everything. Nothing ever changes except the change, except these rules. They change over and over again. And for people like myself and yourself, Matt, who end up being ambassadors to bring people into the game, even if it's just the supporters or creating awareness about the games, it's even harder to explain to people who've never seen the game before of these new rule changes when you can hardly understand them yourself, you know? And I don't know. It's just, it's just frustrating. It's just very, very frustrating. And I think that the GA have to accept opinions from bodies like the referees, bodies like the players association more and and, and take these people into consideration and not just having these blanket votes where we all, we're all buddy buddies and we do whatever vote needs to be done just to 
I don't know, please the latest president or whatever it is, you know, like it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Um, you have to go back a long way till you had, you know, a leader in an association that really stood up and made changes. I'd nearly go back to say it was, it was nearly Jack Bootman that made most of the major changes. And I think the man was uh, not from a, a traditional GA background as well. And, uh, you know, had the guts to, to make some changes, but in recent years, I've, I've lost a bit of faith and uh, a bit disappointed, you know, like, uh, as your mother might say, she's not mad, she's just a little disappointed, you know? Yeah, you mentioned all the rule changes and all that. You mentioned the back pass, which I found interesting, what you said there about Denmark. And my mind cast back, you know, to Sean Kavanagh's pull down on Conor McManus. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably the the main thing, really, out of, out of that void. The black card obviously came in because of Kavanagh's pulled down and what yeah. Tyrone were doing over the years. But, for example, I can't see why the advanced mark came in. I, I honestly don't see the point of it. It's, no. It confuses the game. Like you see with Dublin, they kick a ball from the midfield, the middle of the field, literally beyond uh, between the two 65s, and they count that as a mark. I mean, mm-hmm. what's the skill there? I, I actually don't know whatsoever. Like, you know... I think the mark for a kickout is grand enough because catching is a skill of the game, mm-hmm. obviously, and that needs to be, um, you know, simplified in a way that catching is an unbelievable skill. But it's absolutely going overboard if you're just going to award a person for catching a ball into his chest without the ball dropping. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of ridiculous having the well, What game, let me ask you, Mars, what game does that remind you of? Aussie Rules. So what, what do you think is going on? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it can't be coincidental that you think that it reminds you of Aussie rules. I mean, if there's something going on that we're just a conveyor belt to create players for the next generation of uh, Aussie rule professionals, just let us know, you know, um, but, but why would we change our games completely? Or, or maybe we should just change our game into the Aussie rule game and we'll have the AFL in Ireland and every team is now playing Aussie rules and uh, get rid of that O'Neill's ball and we get a nice uh, oval ball in instead. You know, like, I, I think a, a bit of information needs to be put out there of, of what's the benefit of these changes and why. And, and there always seems to be something like, I mean, you go back far enough, um, uh, the good old days when we had the uh, international rules and we had terribly crap T-shirt jerseys that were being ripped off as in, in the game. And they're like, oh, we'll bring in two refs now for the GA and we'll go from there. And that'll solve all our problems. There's there always seems to be problems, you know what I mean? And, and they never kind of focus on the on the positives. But like, why create all the problems? Why create all these new rules? Why create these issues? Why not just go forward? We've one of the greatest games in the world. They make baseball look interesting here. Baseball's horrendous. It's a hard game to watch. You know, like ugh. we have great games and we try and destroy them. Now, for whatever reason the way hurling is let run, why is it exciting? Because it's free-flowing. And they never seem to change the rules in hurling as often as they change it in football. And that's what's kept the game special. And you could even argue that's what's kept the game so competitive. Because the the, the football now, you know, right, right now at this time of the year, even though it's an unorthodox championship once again, it's only gone back to the traditional standpoint of, of complete knockout. But there's... 
there's there's one to there's possibly there's there's one team everyone has to beat and uh then there's the rest you know and even as a mayo man i'm saying that too you know because we've been there so often but you know you can only keep the tempo up for so long too you know yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the hurling as well. There's actually been a load of rule changes this, this year that have infuriated really the whole population of Ireland. And Joe Canning was coming out during the week and he was saying exactly what you were saying there. Why not focus on the positives, the beautiful game we have and stop changing the game? Because it doesn't. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, What is the point in having rule changes if you have this beautiful game hurling as a prime example and Joe Canning is absolutely correct and he, he's one of the best hurlers in the country for a reason because he executes them skills perfectly but I suppose we'll move on to some positives like the championship is beginning even though it's with less fans like we mentioned earlier on but I suppose you are a pro Mayo man obviously how do you see Mayo doing I suppose Dublin are far ahead but do you see a second Connacht in a row in that Mayo team, possibly? Yeah, just, um, you know, on the job, canning points, it doesn't matter if you're hurling or football. In the last, you know, 10 years or 10, 15 years or so, and at this stage, Joe Canning just so happened to have played hurling. You can tell the man could have played a high level of soccer, rugby, or Gaelic football as well. And that man is is a gift to Ireland. You know, he never went through any proper training programs. He was just an absolute gift. Imagine if you put him into a system of where he was trained in the AFL or he, he was trained in one of the private rugby school systems, what sort of an athlete he would be. If Joe Canning, with the immense skill that he has and, and the absolute value he's brought to game, he's a wizard that just so happens to be an absolute unit as well and obviously got his long-awaited All-Ireland medal too. If he can't have an influence on whoever's hiding behind the GAHQ badge, well, it, it's a sad day for Irish sport and it's a sad day for our country because who makes the decisions at the end of the day? You know, I, I've been in Crow Park HQ a few times. You know, is, is, is it the latest, you know, administration student that, that's, that's in, uh, you know, Biden his or her time for a while on work experience? Like, who the hell is making these decisions? Because... If Joe Canning's out saying these points, which are completely valid, because it's exactly as I said, there, there was never rules made. And then all of a sudden they've made a ball of rules that are big changes in, in Hurling. We don't know why, but how come there's not a debate about it? And why, why can't someone of his stature and caliber be actually listened to? The man knows the game inside out and he's done it. He's, the proof is in the pudding. And you know, yet it's kind of just discarded. Or it's just one side of the interview and then that's it. And of course, the national, um, you know, media, they'll, they'll do what they're told to do. You know what I mean? They're not going to air and give any airtime to something like that, which is very, very disappointing because we love our games and we want to preserve them for the great way they are. And that man, you know, uh, the one goal I can, I can picture that the, the ball was driven from uh, almost the full back line. He catches it in one hand and bring, drill, drills into the, into the bottom corner. That man can do anything on a field and, and he can't get listened to. And that, that that's sad because he's the man that brings the crowds in. He's the man that generates millions and millions of, of uh, euros for the GA every year. And yet he has got no say. That's, that's very, very sad. With uh, Mayo, yes, we'd be expected to win Connacht this year. 
we have to win Connacht this year to go through. We've lost one of the best footballers in the country over the last decade, a marquee forward, gifted, gifted athlete. And we've lost that man because, like all county players, they were rushed back with very little preparation and, you know, a small niggle here and there can lead to having, having big, big problems that lead to surgery. And unfortunately, I don't know if Kenny O'Connor will come back this year. If he does, it, he's in a long recovery system and it might be towards the end of the year if he's lucky. With Connacht, we'd be expected to go the whole way. Um, you know, our game against Clare, for example, was very, very strong. There's some great elements of um, how Mayo can literally switch from a defence to attack. Uh, we're almost like the the uh, Newcastle team back in uh, 96 or 97 where our defenders are scoring as much as the forwards. And, um, you know, you got Oshi Mullen getting up the field, getting a goal, Lee Keegan, Paddy Durkin. And, you know, if you're trying to defend that, the score's coming from everywhere, so it's very hard to defend. Now, I do worry the fact that we leaked. What do we leak against Clare? Uh, it was 218. 218, 218, yeah. So that, that worries me in a way, but... It's great football to watch. Like people love watching Mayo, uh, not just their hordes and hordes of uh, fans from all over the world, but people love watching Mayo because they're exciting. Um, who knows what's going to happen this year? Who knows what's going to happen? I notice because of the upset of everything, and maybe everyone has a short time to prepare, that the gap seems to have narrowed in a few provinces. I mean, one of the challengers to Dublin every year would have been whoever wins Ulster. We saw what happened, Cavan, for example. You know, like Wicklow had a great win over them. Um, Tipperary went down as well again they won their province of Munster last year so who knows but you love to see a bit of excitement and look wouldn't the whole country be glued to the championship for the rest of the year if Dublin got knocked out you know what I mean that would be something massive or maybe another shock um, you never know Clare playing Kerry Clare have nothing to use they've had a very very good game against Mayo who knows what's going to happen there there might be a shock in Ulster Derry are looking strong as well and um Obviously, Mayor are playing Sligo this this uh, weekend coming. I, I only see it going one way, but maybe Sligo might be have something up their sleeves. You never know. But um, the fact that it's back to the old ways, it, it gives it, uh, it gives it more of a gives it more of a boost as well, you know, because it's it's uh, it's it's down to business. We're not having a, a championship with a knockout round, bit of a league called the Super Eights, back to the championship, semi-final, final, you know, which is like this basically some sky executive come in and goes. All right, guys, this is what we're going to do. Okay. You know, and it's organized from London or their Manchester studios. So at least this year it's gone back to the way it was. Pity the rules are still a mess, but you know, we can only sort one problem at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And you even mentioned I can I can actually see that you're you're a huge you have a huge hate for the super eights in particular. Like um that's probably an understatement now, um, but it is kind of a money spinner in a way. Like I could even go back from my old personal experience. I've been to nearly every Cork football match. And then there was a dead rubber against Ross Common and Parky yeah. Ring. The adult ticket was 35 euro. Like let that sink in. You know, it's a dead rubber. There's no chance of either team going through. It's a rainy day in Cork and the ticket is 35 euro. Now, do you think the Super 8s being abolished is um, positive for GA, even looking at that example in a way? Always. Always, Always, yeah. Because 
Matt, at the end of the day, I know that you're from a, a small rural club yourself, just like myself. And, you know, where the club I'm from, Island 80, the, uh, a lot of the Mayo team over the last couple of years are from all the rival clubs around it. So we've always had this, as you know, big teams all around our little parish. And the reason the Super 8s are crap, and I mean the word crap, is because you can't surprise the big teams, right? So the great thing about championship is that at the end of the day, any team can, can possibly beat anyone. I mean, Kerry last year, for example, against Cork, like it was that last goal that just boom, and Kerry are gone. Like it was the biggest shock ever. Um, it'd be great if something like that happened this year, obviously not against Mayo, but you know, other teams. Um, but the Super 8s, the reason why they don't work is that it just goes back to who's got the greatest strength and depth or uh, the dinero, arrogant money, whichever one you want to call it. And um, unfortunately that benefits, um, you know, the bigger teams and obviously the, the one monstrosity team that is Dublin as well. It, it, it really does help them. I'm all for having the surprises. I'm all for helping the underdogs because that's what creates the excitement. Like at the, at the end of the day, I know, as, as a Cork man, you were probably disappointed last year, but you, I'm sure you wished Tipperary all the best once they once once they won the the Munster title because it was great. It was great to see Cavan win Ulster as well. It's it's something to talk about. Who genuinely has any interest in watching Leinster this year? Like, it's it's going to be the same all over again. There might be a shock. You never know, but I sincerely doubt it. You know, um. So Super Eights, I hope we never ever see them again because I guarantee you that was not a GA person that came up up with that idea maybe it was the person maybe it was Florentino Perez you, we never know about him um, the super league but um, it, it could have been it could have been we, we'll never know but um, I'm putting my money on him maybe he came up with the idea he knows nothing about GA or anything but maybe it was one of the American owners Will maybe it was could be we'll could never be. know <laughs> but um, it's probably a conversation for another day anyway. But you mentioned Dublin there, the money and resources they have, the brilliant players they have. They're now going for seven in a row. Kerry are probably the nearest challengers to them looking at the league campaign. Do you think that someone, anyone could stop Dublin this year? Matt, you're a mad GA man. You know, GA stats man, it says it all there. And even the way you said Dublin, they're going for seven in a row. There was no excitement in your voice. No. You know, like, it's just dead because it's just numbing. It just, there's no feeling out of that. Like, and that's what's sad because that sport is all about the surprises. And when you have a team that dominates like that and many, many people can't see any other results happening this year, it's, it, it's a downer, you know? And, um, you get confused when when you try and think of the different finals that Dublin are in because many of them now at this stage have obviously been Mayo or, or Kerry, but certain certain finals stick out to you, you know, like the the Peter Canavan lifting Sam, you know, Big Joe Kernan back in zero two guiding Armagh, you know, stuff like that sticks out. You know, you have to go back to the nineties to see Down and Derry and me, the course lifting against uh, Mayo Galway were there for a while, but over the last couple of years. What's there to talk about? I mean, in a way, it should be like, it's phenomenal that Dublin are going for their seventh in a row, but it's not exciting and it's not sport. It's just almost statistical at this stage. And I'll also remember um, uh, working for the TV station 
the couple of hours after the Mayo game that Dublin bet us in 2013. And I was down in Smithfield for the homecoming, which is the most driest atmosphere I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, it really was a kick in the balls because uh, there was nothing happening. Like it was just a kind of a standard, we've just won Sam, small little gathering and we'll go back and uh, we'll trust the process as, you know, as, as, as the dubs kind of say, and, and, and maybe start training for the following season. I don't know, but there's no excitement there because at the end of the day, we're an amateur association. We want excitement. So because the GA was set up in a way of, uh, you know, the parish rule back in 1884, again, it never would have seen that Dublin would become the, the, the massive population metropolitan area that it is. I mean, you have 1.5 million, you know, against counties like Monaghan, for example, with 60,000. Uh, Cavan have about 80,000 of a population. Obviously not everyone plays GA in these counties, just like they don't play it in Dublin too, but it can't keep going on. And I'm not just saying that because Dublin are dominating. It's, it's, it's just not possible to have some clubs in Dublin with a bigger pick than counties, you know, and um, there will be no stopping them because they're professional set up in every way. One thing I do admire about Dublin is that, you know, you've got players that are, you know, their pockets are being weighed down with medals at this stage and they still have a hunger to go out and compete. That's amazing because they can't go any higher than they've gone unless maybe they get invited into the Champions League or something like that. I don't know, but they've nowhere to go, right? So um, that's the biggest achievement I'd give them to have that hunger that they do have. But it, it, it kills it for the rest of us. You know, it kills it for the rest of us. And, uh, you know, then you throw in the Crow Park debate as well, that they're always going to be there playing in their back garden, et cetera, et cetera. And as many Mayo people know, if you're going to win an All-Ireland in Crow Park, you better beat Dublin by five or six points. And, you know, you're, you're, still, you're still not sure you're going to have it won until the final whistle goes because, you know, any of the close calls don't go for you and that's just the way it is. So I would say it's either going to be Kerry are going to take it off Dublin this year or we might have a shock where Dublin get bet and Mayo go the whole way. Mayo are one of those teams that even though we've lost is one of the best forwards, for example, that we just have this fantastic conveyor belt of fellas who would die for the cause of lifting Sam for the green and red. And that's one thing that we have over many, many other teams. Like we fellas coming up there, like, you know, Tommy Conroy, Ocean Mullen, Lee Keegan, still a young fella just with a lot of mileage, for example, you know, Paddy Durkin, um, we've just these great players like Aidan O'Shea is there a long time you know he's given some serious service to the team James Horn as a great manager obviously I'd be biased towards support Mayo but we, we'd have to get a bit of luck for once you know and uh, we've had many many unlucky games but we'd have to be able to get a bit of luck for, for it to go our way this year Yeah absolutely Dublin seem unstoppable and um Maybe Mayo could win it. I'd love if Mayo win it, even as a Carford. I'd absolutely love if Mayo win it. I don't want Kerry to be the ones to stop Dublin. I'd put it that way. But even Tyrone or Donegal or so, more so Mayo, like those fans have been through hell over the past few years. And yeah, and I suppose we'd love Mayo to win the All Ireland again, wouldn't we? Yeah. You know, we've, um, yeah, my whole lifetime, we've, we've, we've been there and, um, I think my first my first final was actually in '89 as as a baby and uh, showing my age now. But uh, 
we've been there so long. It's 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 very tough to take, um, and it's a very bitter pill to swallow. And but but one thing is that again this year would have a no crowd there. It's kind of this bittersweet of you know it's almost you get cheated if you want it because you can't do what you're supposed to do, which is basically invade the ground and enjoy enjoy it and, and soak it all in. And and that's that's the biggest scenes for me. The biggest scenes for me is watching, for example, the Orange of Armagh in 2002. I'll never forget that. I'm not our man, man at all, but but that was the underdogs that came out of nowhere uh, to do that. And that's what you want to do as a fan. And that's what you want to do as a player to be there and live that moment. And one thing about Mayo too, is that we've been used to as the Mayo squad of, of basically going around the country and, and, you know, going this long about route to, to take out teams around the country and really build up the camaraderie in the Mayo team. And this has happened over the years where, where we've, we've traveled the country as fans and as a team in the qualifiers and it's Suda Mayo because they, they built up this, this massive strength and they improved all the time, all the time. So it's almost like a marathon within the championship, but this year in 2021, it's a straightforward sprint and Mayo can't afford to dance around, not, nor can any team, but obviously there's only one team I care about, but they have to go straight forward. And one thing I did like about our victory over, over Claire, for example, which was coming into the championship is that we got to really use our bench and some of the younger players to get to get a good chance. And it appears to, you know, Rob Henley, he's back in goal there again. He's big boost to fill with David Clark. But I think the fact that he hasn't, you know, a, a big challenger this year might might settle him a bit. And, you know, his years of being involved there might actually, you know, come to fruition there um, uh, finally as well. And obviously 2020, Mayo lost some serious players. We've lost up to six top, top class players you know, from, you know, obviously Tom Parsons to Seamus O'Shea to Donny Vaughan. I mean, it just, it just kept going. It was, a, it was a tough, tough year. But out of that has come has some, some great young players too that are, that are part of this green and red conveyor belt that's going for years. And, and that's the hope that I have in that, you know, that, that these young lads have no fear. Because remember, we won, um, you know, the, um, we've won it underage and all we have to do is do it in senior because 1951 has been a long time. Absolutely. I will hope that Mayo win the All-Ireland once again. Well, first time since 1951. It's a long time no see for Sam McGuire to return to the green and red of Mayo. And I suppose with the fact you're a huge Mayo fan, you're the co-founder of Mayo GA Banter over on social medias and Instagram, Twitter, whatnot. Do you want to explain what you do for them? Yeah, so Mayo Banter, um, you know, basically it sold itself you you uh, talk about Mayo football, you talk about the passion they have for Mayo football, and then you take the piss out of Mayo football at the same time. And, uh, you know, it went really well myself, uh, Morchin and Sean. And um, I suppose one of the highlights for me was uh, bringing Mayo banter over to the US for the celebrations of uh, beating New York before we even got there, to be honest. But uh we brought such a crowd of Mayo people over there that uh, Marty Morrissey, we're hanging out with him over in uh, Times Square there. And um story I heard was actually the New York police were, were worried that there was a, a rumor there was a gang of people meeting at uh, Times Square. But um, one of the one of the referees out of Gaelic Park is actually a retired police officer. So they, they ended up bringing up him and he explained, no, that's just the Mayo fans. And they're just uh, doing their thing, so um, it, it was hilarious. Like like uh, for for Mayo banter, how I organised it was that we done um, live 
you know, interviews pre and post uh, the game. Uh, we covered the game. I was hosting in uh, Cipriani's, which was a, a beautiful venue for basically, uh, you know, a five-star meal to uh, showcase all that is uh, great about Mayo and, uh, you know, Mayo football as well. Uh, Indy Kenny was there on Taoiseach at the time. And um, who else was there? We had a few special guests, some great music as well. And then myself and David Brady had an event over at uh, Rosie O'Grady's that was uh, joint between the Mayo County team and the Mayo Club team based in New York. So it was great to raise money for um, both the county and, and the club at the same time there. And that was a great night as well. Um, these are all uh, times that we had before COVID. So people enjoyed it. What I really loved about uh, Mayo Banter was really promoting club games, uh, com- promoting the ladies' games well before they were being promoted and almost hijacked by the likes of uh, Little, um, who have brought some money into the games, but also they know what they're getting out of it at the same time. And um, I suppose that's where my thoughts on... I was always interested in, in the fashion and fashion design, and that was where my thoughts came for Gertha 47, uh, Gertha, of course, means hunger, and 47 relates back to one of the darkest years that we've ever had in, in our nation in terms, of, uh, in terms of famines that we had. But uh, there was many, of course, famines in Ireland, more you know, orchestrated Holocaust, to be honest. But the idea of Gertha was to switch what hunger is, which is seen as this negative um, black sort of no hope situation. And change that into something that spawned an Irish diaspora across the world. You know, we had John F. Kennedy in the White House. We have had super successful Irish people in countries like Australia, uh, places in the Middle East like the Emirates. We, I met some really great Irish people in, in Russia, for example. We've really brought ourselves all across the world and in a positive light. And we're loved in a lot of countries. And I really hope that continues because sometimes... You know, people can let the side down too. But uh, places like you, you hinted at the Euros. So in 2016, we won fans of the fans of the fans of the year in the Euros in France. And that was for a reason, you know, it was a very good vibes and um, very positive people, especially abroad and, and, and representing their country and behave themselves too, like having the crack, but behaving themselves. So Gertha 47 for me was a North American based uh, brand out of Gaelic games. And that was now uh, selling their wares back home, but really showcasing to the people back home too that the Irish abroad have been very, very successful in many, many ways. And that's where it came about. We usually uh, represent the brand with four stars, which stands for obviously the four provinces. And we have uh, our products in um, stores in New York and uh, stores in Toronto right now. Um, for those stores in particular in Toronto, it's more of sportswear. And in New York, I have uh, both sportswear and I have uh, football gloves. So it was fun, you know, getting uh, some of the uh, county players to wear the football gloves over the last year. Again, starting a brand like Gertha 47 uh, just before a major pandemic, not the best. But, uh, you know, what can you do? You can just uh, help to keep pushing forward and keep uh, showing people that, um, you know, you're supporting a small business and, you know, if we can all help each other out, well, then we can all get through this pandemic together. But I, I really wanted Ireland to be represented 
on the international level, you know, through clothing as well. And, um, you know, some of the designs here, both uh, uh, sports and casual, are not just uh, related to Gaelic games because, you know, Gaelic games is a very uh, specialised and niche market. And there is a huge monopoly with Gaelic games too, which is it was just tough because it's very very hard to you know break the mold. That is the that is the O'Neills. Um, but it'll happen someday. And uh, my idea was to initially start off with making gloves, headwear, and then move into more of the sportswear and um, jerseys for various teams and clubs as well. But it's thoroughly enjoyable, and I think you have to do stuff in business is enjoyable or else you'll never put in the hours that you're putting in. So right here behind me, I have some, um, some of our stuff. For example, this is a very popular hoodie because we've got the uh, embroidered back with the, with the Irish colors and you've got Gertha in the front as well. And then um, as I can show you the rest of them there, Matt, we have um, a team that I sponsored over here, which is um, a strongman team. And uh, many of the athletes in the strongman team are, uh, are Irish. Uh, this girl in particular is from Kildare. So uh, she was wearing that in some competitions here. Um, again, we've got the, the strongman stuff as well. And uh, what I like to represent here is uh, obviously to show um, the different uh, connections between the various various countries abroad. So um, I sponsored two of the Mayo players over in Australia, the Kelly sisters, and uh, they had similar hats with the, uh, obviously with the Aussie flag as well. So um you know, like people like the whole modern twist of it as well, because sometimes the um, uh, O'Neills can kind of take over the whole design of the whole thing. And uh, many of the uh, other brands just seem to, uh, you know, copy the same thing as, as what O'Neills do. We try and do it a little bit differently. So with this baseball hat here, what I done was have it more along the lines of um, having your lacers in the back. So it, you can you can tighten to fit the hat to suit your head with, with the laces. And obviously you can change them out for different colors. So people find that interesting because it's obviously, you know, a very sporty brand, uh, you know, worn by athletes or sports enthusiasts that actually, you know, have done it as well. So um, this is a very popular one as well. So I'll, I'll send one over to Cork for you, Matt. But um, no, it's a thoroughly enjoyable um, company to be involved in. I've got some good help as well. And um, we like kind of designing things a little bit differently. So you'll see this one here with the, with the military uh, print. Uh, we like doing things a little bit differently. So you can have it as both the kind of a, a casual wear along with, uh, you know, sports wear as well. So, yeah, like it's, um, it's interesting times for a small business. So um, we'll, uh, we'll see how we can ride it out. We hope there's not like uh, some nuclear bomb heading off now and maybe at the end of the year that will finish everything off. But uh, <laughs> So far, so good. Absolutely. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant company. I'd recommend people to look at it. And Mayo GA Banter, the work you do there is absolutely brilliant. And obviously, I'd link both Gorta 47 and Mayo GA Banter in the bio this episode to give people more information on your product and what you do for Mayo GA Banter. Just um, before you go, Paul, it's a thing I've brought in for the new series of the GA Statsman podcast. Yeah. It's, um, it's a bit tricky. You have to name... Your dream five-a-side Gaelic football team. Now, it could be any players in history. It doesn't have to be current. And obviously, by all means, you could pick five male players if you if you wish. Um, but um, what would be your five-a-side dream Gaelic football side of all time? Well, Matt, when you first told me about this earlier on today, I uh, straight up named five male players straight away. Um, and then I, I was thinking a bit more more deeply and I was trying to think 
Um, it wouldn't just be about the players for me. It'd be about the personality uh, behind the player. And uh, I'm really drawn towards leaders that have, that have broken the mold. So when, when I was looking that up, in terms of playing ability and just watching a wizard at play, I had to name a man who came from a small club that brought them the whole way to an All-Ireland final and actually won that All-Ireland final too. And that wizard was Kieran Mack. Kieran McDonald from Cross Malina. I would have to name him as uh, the, the first name in, in this five uh, dream team. Cross Malina were a small club. They became a huge club because of him. And now they're the type of club they're building again. And the key, of course, involved in the current Mayo squad too. So he's a huge inspiration for the current stars as well. Number two for me would have had to been uh, Joe Kernan because he lost to find himself in, in the late 70s and obviously came around in 2002 and, and done something remarkable with a team that had never ever won in Ireland. And it's not just about always playing ability with me, but just a leader. I met him when I was uh, 19 years of age. My club manager at the time, uh, Shane Hawkins, is a fantastic manager. We just won uh, the county final the year before and he brought us up to meet Joe Kernan and just have us give us a team talk. It was one of the most fascinating team talks I was ever at. And I remember I, I have a photo at home somewhere of me standing beside Joe Kernan. You know, a big man in, in, in many, many ways, but a man that, you know, could inspire. And he inspired a so-called weaker team, you know, to lift the Sam Maguire with, with, uh, with Kieran McGinney. And I just, um, honestly, I, I was just taken aback. I was actually really, really, really taken aback of, of what he'd say that day. And some of those, um, points that I that I learned that day, you know, I, I I still I still carry with me to this day, you know. Um, number three on the, on um, the the, the neighbouring side of uh, Armagh would have to be Peter Canavan, and the reason Peter Canavan would be picked for that was again a man who came around in, you know, ninety five. Uh, Tyrone got to a final, and that happened there uh, in a while. They weren't in familiar surroundings, and uh, they were lucky to lose out to Dublin. And then for that man to continue for the rest of his career. And finally do it again with Tyrone um, really shows, you know, the resilience in the man. But I was lucky enough to meet him in person. And it's just the intellect behind the man that, again, I often wonder if these guys weren't involved in GA, what would they have done? You know, God knows what they, they could have done in, in other worlds. Who knows? They could have been, you know, politicians or CEOs or whatever they were. But like, again, a genius that he, he used all that smarts to, to do it in, in a white and red jersey for Tyrone. I have to mention Andy Morn on this team as well. I was lucky enough to play with him in college uh, back in the day. And I always remember one summer when we were, uh, we were finished playing some game and uh, having a shower or whatever else. And I said, what are you at for the summer, Andy? And um, no, he asked me what I was at for the summer. And I saw him, I got a job as a sales rep uh, with, uh, I think, Britflick Ireland at the time. And I go, what are you at? I'm going to play football. And it blew my mind because I, I, I didn't really get what he's on about but basically he was going to train for the whole summer and, and play football for the whole summer and uh, he at that age was you know trying to break onto the Mayo senior team and that was the type of um, you know great commitment and willpower that a man like that had that that brought him to the heights he was brought to and rightfully named player of the year um, unfortunately had retired uh, from Mayo as well but uh, you know gave it his all and you know a highly respected player so the last one would have to be uh, Jim McGuinness. And that would be Jim McGuinness as a player or as a coach, because again, he broke the mold. Like the, the passion that man 
instilled in that team of Donegal back in 2012 was just, uh, it was unspoken of. Like one of my closest friends at the time, um, Shane, we lived together when we were in college. He's from Killy Beggs. He had played for under 21 himself and he, and he had trained under McGuinness. And I met him for a pint before the game too. And he was telling us, you know, you know, we're just kind of here for, for the day out. And like, you know, Mayo have this because obviously Mayo are roaring hot favourites. And Jim McGuinness had other plans, you know, and he took a weak Donegal team and made them the powerhouse that they are. And obviously that didn't start in 2012. That started many years before that as, as an under 21 manager. But also remember as a player too, you know, he was a very good player himself and he really, really studied the game. And he, he won um, a title back in 92 too. So like, again, um, I'm the type of guy who would, would, would pick, you know, players and personalities that just have this all-round presence about them. And, you know, when they walk into a room, like people end up surrounding these men and, and, and genuine heroes of mine. Um, and, you know, I, I could go on. There's one or two players that I could name as well that would have been, would have been close to this, to this uh, five-a-side team, but uh, I'll leave it at that. And um, again, highly, highly respected fellas and genuine um, light carriers of our games, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're right to go down to leaders group, Jim McGuinness, uh, Joe Kern, absolute brilliant players and brilliant leaders, which is why they became managers later on. And Andy Moore is a player I'd, I'd admire for years in the Mayo shirt. I think he's a goal-getter. He works for the team, especially in that 2017 final where he set up Lee Keegan. That was a absolutely brilliant goal where he just kicked the ball in and Keegan running onto it. I genuinely thought Mayo would win that day, but alas, same old, same old. But um, look, Andy Moore, unbelievable player in his day. And all five definitely deserves the place at the five-side side. And um, I guess we'll leave it there, Paul. Thank you so much for joining and uh, wish you the best of luck with Mayo J Banter and Gert of RT7. And hopefully the Green and Red of Mayo will win their first All-Ireland title since 1951. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, you know, as I as I say to my friends every year, this year is our year, you know. So uh, we'll see what happens. Hopefully, we'll get everyone back, you know, in a stadium, being normal, hanging out, and just enjoying the the, the greatest export we have in Ireland, which is our games and 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 the lifeblood of every community, you know. And that's rural and urban alike, you know. And uh, I just want to see that back. I just want to see people back and and, and having that camaraderie back again, you know. And uh, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to be on the uh, GA Satsman podcast, Matt. I really appreciate what you're doing, and obviously, uh, you know your your work speaks for itself. So uh, thanks very much for that. I, I really appreciate it, and I hope you have a, a great year, 2021, and uh, and going forward. Thanks so much for that, Paul. I really appreciate you coming on, and thanks for your kind compliments there. And uh, hopefully, May will do well now this year. <laughs> hopefully, and hopefully, Cork do well too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll reach the other final. Maybe. <laughs> thanks to Paul for coming on and thank you for tuning in. Thanks to FortuneFavors.ie for sponsoring today's show and until next time I'll see you then and take care.